2: On News Radio six eighty WPTF,
1: and I'm Doug Lewis, certified financial planner,
2: and I'm Deborah Lewis, certified financial planner,
3: and we're here to answer your questions for the next hour.
1: Hello, Jim. How can I help
4: you? I'd like to uh, ask you what you're recommending on executors for a state of a married couple, who you should choose as executors.
1: Well, it depends a little bit on the situation. Tell me a little bit about yourself, Jim. How old are you? I'm sixty-eight. Sixty-eight, and are you married? Yes. All right, and your wife's age? 60. 60. Is it a first marriage or have you been married before either of y'all? Before. Both of you been married before? Yes. All right. Have you had children from either marriage before yourselves? Yes. So both of you have children from previous marriages? Yes. And also children from your present marriage? No. No children between the two of you. Are you keeping your assets separated? Do you have a prenuptial? Yes. All right, so the combined size of the total estate right now looking on a financial statement of the two of you, what would that be? I'm going to guess about $2 million. All right, so you got $2 million between the two of you all on your financial statement. Right. And uh, what kind of estate planning has been done thus far?
4: We have done some of the usual things.
1: You both uh, have do wills. You, do you have,
4: yes, you, we've done that sort of thing, and as you folks know better than I, you have to review the wills regularly, which we try to do.
1: Well, what I was wondering is, do you have any trust set up? Do you have revocable? No, not yet. All right. No revocable living trust set up yet? No. All right. And you have a simple will right now for each of y'all, which was created when? Uh, It was reviewed recently, as a matter of fact. All right. Where do you want your assets to go?
4: Well, we're we're trying to uh, decide that. There will be some inheritance also, which we can't, one we can't depend on, but one we must consider as a possibility.
1: One coming to you and your wife? Yes. Of the approximate two million dollar combined estate, about how does it break out? Is it at all equal? Probably
4: no. Probably be uh, 40, or, or with my wife having the larger estate.
1: All right. So, but even so, you yourself with forty percent, you're looking at maybe eight hundred or more yourself. Maybe, yeah. All right. Okay. Well, here's what needs to happen. You want to have revocable living trust established. Each of you, you establish a trust. And you transfer your assets into this trust, everything you own that can be transferred into this trust. Now, you identify the trustee of this trust as the one who's going to control it, and you want to be your own trustee. So you're simply moving it from your right hand to your left hand. However, now, at the time of your death, there will be nothing to have to go through probate for a will or for an executor. You with me so far? Yes. How much of the eight hundred thousand is in retirement assets? Oh, probably half of it. All right. So, what you want to do? The four hundred cannot. The four hundred retirement assets can't go into a revocable trust. Okay. But the other four hundred can be transferred into a revocable living trust with yourself as trustee. That means that should you die the next day, the four hundred thousand in the IRA or in the retirement plan will pass according to whomever the beneficiary is and there's no executor needed for that, the 400 that's in the revocable living trust will not go through probate because probate is only what's owned by you personally at your death, which would be zero. Mm-hmm. You with me so far? Mm-hmm. All right. Now, once we've if we've laid out this schematic, at this point, there's no need for an executor. However, we generally create what's called a pour-over will, which is a simple little will that says, anything I forgot to put in my revocable living trust, throw it over there for me. Mm -hmm. And in that case, yes, an executor uh, is necessary. But the real question then is going over to the trust and going to the IRA beneficiaries. And everything I tell you is duplicated by your wife identically. Mm -hmm. Okay? Now, at your death, do you want any of your assets to pass to her?
4: Yes, and we're working on how that
1: will break down. And then do you want her to have the use of those assets only and the principal to go to your children afterwards? or do you want her to have the principal and the income of of those since she already has a sizable state of her own
4: well you're asking a good question i guess we're in the process of deciding that All right.
1: i would suggest number one you should meet with a certified financial planner and walk through each of these questions because each of them have certain repercussions
2: jim you can call me at the office at nine one nine eight seven two seven thousand that's usa seven thousand
1: Okay. because for example If you want your wife to have access to the income off of your assets, but not to have the principal, namely let the principal go to your children after she passes away, then you could establish inside the revocable living trust death instructions, which are called testamentary instructions, just as if they were written in your will, saying, I want so much of my stuff to go into a trust of which she gets the income, but not the principal, then the question is, who is going to be the manager of that trust? That's the trustee. Mm-hmm. Now, in some cases, you make her the trustee. Mm-hmm. If you're concerned that she might remarry and her next husband would possibly have a financial crisis that tempted her to access those the principal and deprive your children of their estate, you can put things like Q-tip provisions, which are uh, provisions that insist that the principal only go to the children, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera.
4: And this could be vice versa too.
1: Exactly. Okay. Now I am not an attorney, so I need to qualify that I'm not telling, giving you legal advice on the air. I'm just giving you stance. No, 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 I understand it. Okay. All of these are things that I do in my office every day when I'm going, when I'm strategizing with my clients on their financial uh, uh, plan in the estate section. Mm-hmm. But the questions need to be thought out carefully in terms of what if, what if, what if, what if. Okay. You can build it as flexibly as you want, but the bottom line is this. If you move everything from yours into trust, then the executor is is, is a meaningless party. The real person to identify now is who will be the trustee controlling the trust. Uh During your lifetime, you are the trustee, but if you become disabled, have a stroke or something, then who do you want to control those assets to help take care of you? Should, Should it be your spouse or should it be maybe one of your children? And over in her case, should it be you or should it be one of the children?
4: We it, have pretty much decided it should be one of us
1: okay. because of uh, the complications of a large family. All right. right, and that's very and that's very often the issue. There, what do you do with children and children issues and spouses of children? Uh, it becomes it becomes very interesting when, when we lay out all the pieces in my office and go through all of them. All of a sudden, it comes up. Sometimes there's a trusted child mm-hmm. uh, who is most responsible. Mm-hmm. But the trustee is the party who replaces the issue of executor, and then the types of trust will define what type of trustee. Mm-hmm. I hope I've given you enough just as a way to start yes, thinking about yes, it. you have, and I, I appreciate it very much.
2: Yeah, you know, one thing that might be good, Jim, is you, since you and your wife do have some questions, and, of course, you're making these decisions, get a notebook and just jot down some of these issues that you're concerned about, and, of course, work with a financial planner that can assist you so that your comfort level is at ease and that all of your desires are, are uh,
1: one instructed. Thing, yeah, one thing that I make as an overriding principle in all of our estate plan recommendations of no-nos of who not to do, we never have a bank as a trustee. We never have the bank in a control position. How about as executor? Same point? Same Usu- usually, we don't have a bank as the executor. Okay. It's a big fee for no use. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you do it right, but uh, but if we, if it's necessary to have a bank, we limit the powers of the bank to where uh, they cannot control the money afterwards, the investment decisions, because mm-hmm. then you're leaving your heirs subject to poor investment control. Mm-hmm. Hope that helps. Thanks very much. All right, Yes, Jim. and if you
2: have any other questions, Jim, you can call me at the office at 919-872-7000. That's USA 7000. Thank you, Reverend. And thanks for calling. All right, All right, take care.
1: Lynn, what's really new, would you say, in the world of retirement planning?
2: Well, certainly as people are making transitions from either being forced to retire or being laid off from their job, there are a lot of transitions that they have to think about, Right. A number of individuals in several weeks have called me at the office regarding taking the early retirement package, what to do with the TDSP, how do I plan for this transition, and uh, I wanted to just kind of go over that with
1: you. It's crucial that people do have a game plan.
2: And, you know, I remember one of the questions that one of the individuals had was, we have, you know, maybe $20,000 left on the mortgage, should we pay that off with the IRA money? Or should we hold on to the mortgage? Another thing is, now that we've got this lump that's in the TDSP or in the, the savings plan, the retirement savings plan, is it in the right place? Or should we invest it in some other vehicle to produce more income? What are your comments on that, Doug?
1: Well, we have an immediate knee-jerk reaction when all of a sudden a life that has been ours for the last 20 or 30 or sometimes 40 years is suddenly being rearranged for us either by opportunity or forced upon us. And the first knee-jerk reaction sometimes is to address one specific issue in a sense of panic, such as you mentioned, our mortgage. Gee, we got to get our mortgage paid off. Although, if you have long-term planning, it may be proper to address that. Sometimes it's not the best thing to quickly try and pay off the mortgage. Sometimes it may be. Very often, you're right, people think, well, maybe I could get my retirement money out, my TDSP, if it's a tax deferred savings plan or a 401k or IRA money and do so. But that sometimes is the worst thing you can do because if you have to end up taking $10,000 out and paying Uncle Sam 3500 of that for taxes to take it out and another thousand, so you end up paying Uncle Sam $4,500 taxes to get $10,000 out to try and pay off a $10,000 mortgage, it may be the worst thing you can do. And by the same token, you may be faced with the question of, should I go ahead? Like one gentleman I've spoke with this past week, he tried to figure out, well, if he got the retirement monthly check they were offering him, it would just meet his living expense needs. But as we pointed out and went through his numbers, we realized that's exactly right. On the other hand, his children could have been deprived of an enormous inheritance if he lived long enough. And if he could find a way to have his cake and eat it too, to take the entire lump sum, And to have that reinvested to produce enough income to still support him and still have the lump sum, he didn't have to give up his lump sum just to meet his needs. Call me, Deborah
3: Lewis, Certified Financial Planner at Lewis Financial Management, 919-872-7000.
2: Now, if you're 59 and a half, you can take the money, right, in your retirement account without being penalized,
1: correct? Actually, that's not correct, Linda. That's a confusion a lot of people have you're going to pay taxes no matter what age you are. Exactly. (laughs) If you take possession, it's called constructive receipt. So let's say that you've got $100,000. If you say, I'll take that $100,000, I'm over 59 and a half, then you're going to go ahead and pay about $35,000 in income taxes to get your hands on it. On the other hand, if you're under 59 and a half, you have an additional penalty, so instead of paying 35000 in taxes, you'll pay 45000 in taxes. So all you get by being 59 and a half is you get the avoidance of that extra 10% penalty. Right. But in either case, you can do the IRA rollover and pay no taxes. And then only be taxed on what income comes to you. Then you choose out of that IRA rollover how much you'd like to take out to live on and then pay taxes only on that. And if you're under 59 and a half, then you can go ahead and actually pay the 10%, the little 10% penalty on that monthly check that you're taking out of your IRA, which might only be $200 and you might have to pay an extra 20 bucks in taxes, but then you control it, not having it controlled for you. The overall advice is do not panic. Don't have a knee jerk reaction to try and solve one specific part of your new world and create possibly another problem in another part. Don't try and solve the mortgage issue and hurt the retirement plan issue. Don't try and solve the cash flow issue and mess up the investment issue. Look at asset allocation, all these things. My overall advice is get help with a certified financial planner to look at the entire picture from the viewpoint of total planning, looking at all seven aspects. The knee-jerk reaction, trying to do it yourself, is trying really to do It's very similar to trying to do brain surgery on yourself. It's not a good idea, Lynn.
2: Get your situation analyzed,
1: right? Get your situation analyzed from a professional.
2: And I want to commend all of our people out there. It seems like a lot of the folks that I speak to uh, at the office that call in have done a wonderful job of accumulating, but they get to the panic stage where they're wondering, now what? What do we do? Work with a financial planner. Certainly, if you want any information, I'll be happy to send you some. That number at the office is 8727,000. 8727,000. Well, Doug, people seem to be calling at the office and asking me, how come some mutual funds advertise that they're paying 25% and the yield on their CDs is only 3%? People seem to be confusing yield with total return.
1: Lynn, I think it's probably one of the most commonly confused areas in the world of investment planning right now the question of current yield and the Confusion with current yield and total return. First of all, let's go back to the basics, and let's think of investments as chickens and their income that's produced from them as eggs. The chicken is your principal. The income, that's the yield, is the egg. If it's a CD, what do you call that yield on a CD? Interest. Right. And if it's a stock, what do you call that yield? Dividend or distribution? It's the dividend. That's exactly right. Whatever it is, that's the income you get from it. So the question is, well, what is this 25% or 20% that people either see advertised in the paper or hear a stockbroker talk about or something like that? That's not the current yield, Linda. That's something called total return. Now, total return is a definition when your dividends or your current yield is reinvested back into your investment And it's how much your investment has grown over the past whatever period of time it's quoted in. If it's a one-year total return and you started with $10,000, if it was worth $12,000 at the end of the year, then your investment went from $10,000 to $12,000. That means you could sell it for $2,000 more than you paid for it, and that's a total return of 20%. However, that investment, that mutual fund, might have given a current yield of 7%, maybe $700. And if that $700 went back into that fund and bought more shares, and by the end of the year, the shares were worth $12,000, then the total return would be 20%, but the current yield would be 7%. And it's very important that people understand that the total return has nothing to do with the yield on investments.
2: If you'd like any further information, call me at the office in Raleigh. That number is 919 That's 919-USA-7000. We're going to take a caller right
4: now.
1: Steve, this is Doug Lewis, Certified Financial Planner. How can I help you this evening? Good evening. How are you?
4: All right. Um, it's clear in the case of an insurance salesman or a stockbroker or a lawyer how they get paid. In the case of a Certified Financial Planner, you're giving a variety of advice, and you may advise to purchase products or something from another individual. How are you compensated? What is, how do you go about getting a certified financial
1: planner for yourself? Financial planners can be paid in one of three ways and actually there are all sorts of variations on those ways. First of all, there's what's called the fee-only planner. The fee-only planner will be paid either on an hourly basis or he may be paid or she may be paid on a flat basis which is for a project, let's say that uh, you come with a series of questions you want asked and, and you want some uh, analyses run and so forth, and he can quote you how much time it will take or how over what period or, or what his flat fee might be to do that. Some fee-only planners do what they call a percent of assets. So if you're going into a long-term financial planning relationship, some will go ahead and charge you anywhere from, say, uh three-quarters of a percent of your assets to, I've heard, as high as 3% of your assets. You really have to sort of walk through what type of arrangements you want with a fee-only planner. And I will say this. Some fee-only planners do something called money management, where you sign over discretion, and then they charge you a percent of assets for managing the money, but not so much the financial planning component. It's just the money management component. Okay. Okay, now you have the other kind of planners. You have those that will go ahead and charge on what they call a fee commission basis. And that's where they may be a reduced fee, where they're charging you, again, either hourly or on a flat fee basis. But because the advice will contain some investment or some insurance or some implementation of something, they're going to be doing the implementation for you. So if it's disclosed to you up front and agreeable, then they can give you a reduced fee because there'll be commissions that you're going to have to pay to somebody. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you can go ahead and just have the advice given to you and you take the advice and you go over to your local stockbroker or your insurance agent and you pay the commission. But other people say, well, if I'm going to have to pay it over there, is there a way I could get a reduced fee and let the implementation be done through the planner giving the advice? And there are planners. I would say most planners work in that way.
3: Give us a call at Lewis Financial Management, 919 872 and let us help you create a sensible plan.
1: And I don't really agree with this third method, but I've heard it said that there are those who are commission-only planners. I don't think you can be independent if everything that you're doing uh, is based upon some sort of implementation, some sort of a sale Right, Because then you're commission-driven. Uh, I don't ever recommend it. I know I myself will never do that. And I, I, Linda and I have never done that. Steve,
2: when you're looking at, at a financial planner, find out how long have they been a certified financial planner? Did they just get their certification last month, or have they been in the industry for a while? Because that will determine what is their expertise, right, Doug?
1: It is. Another good thing is the question of what does the planner do. Planners are trained, especially certified financial planners, are trained to produce financial plans. Now, a financial plan is a document. It's a written document. Uh, Ours in our office cover 13 sections of the client's financial life. And that document is a series of analyses and recommendations. Then there's the ongoing reviews. And the reports and the monitoring and the tracking and the ongoing planning through the years. So when interviewing planners, you should look at a sample financial plan. You should find out how many plans the planner produced this past year for clients. And you should look at the ongoing planning reports that the planner provides to his clients. And then, of course, you should make sure that you get client references and speak to clients who have been with the planner for a minimum of two, three, or four years.
4: How could you be confident that a fee and commission financial planner would be working in your best interest instead of simply the best interest of the product he's selling?
1: The only way that you can ever be confident of someone not taking advantage of you is really through experience. So, And I don't mean to hedge that question, but you've got a problem of the cost. If a person wants to work on a straight fee-only basis, many people can't afford it. Right. And then to work on a fee-only basis and then to go elsewhere and also pay commission, some don't. Questions that I would ask, though, is, is the planner at all connected with any investment products that he recommends? Mm-hmm. For example, let's say that he's at a brokerage firm and he calls himself a financial planner. Well, obviously, he's going to be recommending the products of that brokerage firm. Correct. Uh, let's say that he's got an insurance affiliation and uh, this is his main business. And I would also say one of the things you can do is you can look at the planner's revenues. Ask the planner, where do you get the bulk of your income from, from fees or from commissions? Mm -hmm.
2: Our number here in Raleigh, uh, if you'd like to give a call, is 919-872-7000. That's 919-USA-7000.
1: Does that help, Steve? Okay, that's very good. I appreciate your time there. Oh, you're sure welcome. Thank Thank you you for calling. Bye-bye. Bye-bye now.
2: Well, Doug, what's new in
1: the world of retirement planning? There is something that's changing as the family structure is changing. Really, with parents living longer and longer and longer, somebody is going to have to take care of these aging parents, and that somebody really is falling to those children who are in the 50-year-old age bracket. You know, suppose you're about to enter your golden years and you have a, a parent who's increasingly likely to be frail in their 80s. You know, here you are looking at your own retirement, and you've got to take care of parents in their 80s. And the crunch is really coming from the top and from the bottom.
2: About 70% of married people ages 51 to 61 have four-generation families, including elderly parents and children who've had children of their own, right? It's
1: really amazing, isn't it, Linda? Not only that, another 25% have three generations, Three generations living at one time.
2: Nearly half of single grandmothers give 20 hours of care to their grandchildren weekly, and for married grandmothers, 15 hours. And as far as grandfathers are concerned, 16% of single grandfathers care for grandkids 10 hours each week. Right, Doug?
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Women are the most likely to provide personal care for the elderly parents, In other words, the personal care, most likely it's the woman, the daughter, who is providing care for their parents, and yet men are more likely to give the financial support. Two-thirds of
2: Americans this age are in excellent or good health, but many others say that they are too disabled to work. I believe it was last week uh, a client had come in and we were discussing about a live-in situation for an elderly parent, I believe her father, uh, has to have some assistance with uh, insulin, mm-hmm. and and she and her sister are bearing this responsibility. And that's happening a lot with a lot of our uh, people in the 50s to 60s taking care of elderly parents that do need some type of assistance.
1: You're right. She was one of our clients, Linda, and we are seeing more and more folks coming to us in our practice who are looking for their own financial planning, but part of their financial planning is how to take care of their parents.
2: Exactly. And many Americans edging toward retirement face a slew of problems, everything from poor financial security to increased family
1: responsibilities. Right, Doug? Right. Those who are now in their 50s who are moving into their pre-retirement years may be facing a much more difficult situation than ever before, and the ones in their 30s right now are going to live entirely on Social Security. They may have a pension, they probably will not have a pension, but Social Security is really going to be the thing that the 30-year-old bracket is going to be facing. So it's getting worse and worse and worse because of this longer and longer longevity.
2: Behind the averages are large proportions of people that are falling into some category, such as ill or disabled, without pensions, without insurance, without assets, or lacking family support. And, uh... Because I speak to hundreds and hundreds of people that have questions or that are concerned about doing some financial planning in their situation, it's important for people to look at their situation and get an analysis as to whether they're going to be comfortable at retirement, right?
1: Right, Lyndon. I think you probably need to explain to the audience, those who don't know what you just meant by that, when you speak to hundreds by hundreds. When we go off the air, then we live our regular life as financial planners during the week at the office. That number at the office, by the way, is 919 872 You've probably spoken to well over 3,000 people in the last couple of yes, years. Yes, that's
2: a lot of hours. And then what happens
1: when they call you, then what do you do next?
2: Well, usually I find out what is their concern, what is the situation. And then um, they tell me a little bit about their assets and their liabilities and you know their situation, whether they're going to retire or they've inherited money or they want to do some college funding, etc., And I send them a packet, and I encourage people to write down their questions,
1: in a notebook. You mean you send them a packet of information about how to set up an appointment with us as a financial planner?
2: Exactly, and some worksheets that might be helpful for them in gathering all of their financial data together because one of the most important things that people can do, and it doesn't cost you anything, is get a legal pad, get that notebook out. Leave it on the counter and start writing the questions and the concerns that you have in your particular situation down, you know, when you're sitting around drinking coffee with your husband. Start thinking about these things and writing them down. Sometimes it has to do with revising the trust or setting up a will. So
1: you send out the packet and then they all call back and say now they're ready to schedule an appointment? No, no, no. no.
2: Sometimes they do. If people that are serious about doing it, they do set up an appointment and... uh, But most of them, they don't. They procrastinate.
1: Yeah. And I think that's your main point, that they just procrastinate. You want to make sure that people actually, once they get excited about doing something, they don't procrastinate and do nothing.
2: Right. Do yourself a favor. Stop procrastinating and write your questions down and get your situation reviewed or analyzed by a financial planner because... One of the things that happens in retirement is that people don't always plan for what happens if my spouse dies. Will I have enough income, right, Doug?
1: Well, that's right, and we know that all the time. People think about it and think about it, but then all of a sudden a tragedy occurs, and it's too late now. They didn't realize their pension, their husband's pension, just stopped if it was the spouse or got cut in half and so on.
2: And if you would like any other information, you can call the office here in Raleigh. That number is 919-USA-7000. That's 919-872-7000. I'll be happy to send you some information. Well, Doug, with regard to IRA distributions, when a person becomes uh, 70 and a half, how do you know how to take the money out of your IRA?
1: That's a real interesting question. A lot of people want to know, don't they, Linda? You know, an IRA is a very interesting uh, vehicle because you need to know how to get the most out of it. And it depends on what age you are. First of all... Uh, There are three methods that let you get money out of an IRA penalty free. Did you know that? You can get money out of an IRA before you're 59 and a half years old and pay no 10% penalty. And this is important for people who are taking early retirement. They want to know, what do I do? I'm taking early retirement, but is there a way that I can get to my IRA or my 401k or my TDSP and not pay that 10% penalty? And yes, there is. And that's the substantially equal periodic payment story. Now, there are three methods to compute this, that this, this feature available. But basically, what the, what the rule says is that you can take money out of your IRA or your retirement plan penalty free if you set up a payment schedule based on a single life expectancy or a joint life expectancy and that payment must be made to you every year, at least annually, and they have to continue for the later of five years or up until age 59 and a half, whichever is the longest period. Now, if you fulfill those three methods, those three conditions, you don't have to worry about that 10% penalty. So you have to fulfill those conditions. Right. You've got to set up a payment schedule that never changes. Right. It's a fixed amount. Huh? Right. And it's got to go until you're 59 and a half or five years, the longer of the two periods. But now that brings you down to, what's that payment method? Well, what is? Well, this is where the, the IRS gives you three choices. They give you, one, the life expectancy method. Number two, they give you the amortization method. And number three, they give you the annuitization method. And it's quite important to know how to work with those different formulas because you have three choices on setting this thing up. Life expectancy method? Yeah, it means how long you expect to live. The life expectancy method. This method is determined by dividing the individual's balance in his IRA by his life expectancy. Uh, And you can also uh, include your your spouse's life expectancy to get a joint life. And this amount has to be redetermined each year based on that amount and so forth. Now, this method is the same one that you use when you get to be 70 and a half, by the way, this is what we call the minimum distribution method. Uh, but this method that if you use this method, this will give the smallest dollar amount of the three.
3: This is Deborah Lewis, call 919-872-7000 to set an appointment with me regarding your financial situation. Call me at 919-872-7000.
1: You got three methods you can choose. If you use the life expectancy method, and remember, once you set this method up, you can't change it. You can't change it. Once you set up this method, you can't change it for 5 years or age 59 and a half, the longer of the two periods. So it'll be the smallest amount. or the. Smallest. If you use this, if you need a small figure, this would be the one to choose. Second method is called the amortization method. Now, the amortization method also gives you a level payment, and it's de- determined by amortizing the balance over the life expectancy of the individual at what's called a reasonable interest rate Now that reasonable interest rate is determined by IRS guidelines and they have a, they say that you can be anywhere within 80 to 120% of the federal midterm rate. So you can do some, you work with your financial planner and if you use the amortization method, you can sort of fudge a little bit here and there to find out what is the dollar amount you need for your living expenses to get out what you need because you can't change it. If you do change it anytime in that period, every dollar you've taken out in the past for the last X number of years is going to be hit with a 10% penalty. The third one is the annuitization method. This method also gives you level payments. And this method will work very similar to the amortization method. One of these two is going to be the best one for early retirees. It's got to be based on your living expense need, whereas the first method is the best one for people 70 and a half. It's important to work with a financial planner to figure out what is best for you because you can't change it.
2: To any of our listeners, if you have a question or if you would like to receive our introductory packet of information, I'll be happy to send it to you. Our number in Raleigh is 919-872-7000. That is USA 7000. If you have some financial planning concerns or questions about your situation, get a notebook and start jotting down some of those questions and work with a financial planner. You're listening to Money Matters with Doug and Linda Lewis, and we're going to take a caller right now.
1: Go ahead, Jerry. How can I help you, Doug Lewis? Yes,
4: thank you. Uh, uh, my daughter uh, blessed me with my uh, first grandchild six months ago.
1: Mazotas. Thank you. <laughs> That's congratulations. Yes,
4: um, and uh, consequently, I'm uh, thinking of uh, of my will uh-huh. with regard to a will and. Uh, I was wondering, uh, are lawyers sufficiently uh, conversant with the matters that uh, you engage in to uh, be trusted, or should I see a financial planner first?
1: That's a very good question. I'm glad that somebody finally asked that. No, they are not. We are not what they call a board certified state. Some states, they're board certified where they have to declare what they're specialist in. But no, attorneys are not versed in these. Some are and some aren't. You should be working with a certified financial planner who can work in tandem with the attorney, even help find the attorney so he can set up the strategy and the attorney can do the legal work. That's a very good question, Jerry. Uh,
4: general reference to assets, property, and such in a will is not
1: sufficient from in your opinion. General reference? You mean for an attorney to know?
4: Uh, well, merely to refer in, in the uh, matter of disposing of one's estate.
1: Uh, you want to go through the numbers. I see. In other words, it's got to be numerically worked out, and that's where the attorney generally is not gonna, he's not gonna have that or whatever. Jerry, if you will call me at my office, I'd love to talk this more with you because this is a very touchy matter, and I and it's one that's very dear to my heart because people get messed up real bad in this area. My number is eight seven two seven thousand. You're right. Uh, gifting strategies and working with a proper attorney are crucial. Thank you, Doug. Thank you, Jerry. Bye bye. Bye bye. Now, thank you for listening. Well, there was
2: an interesting article regarding withdrawing money and cutting taxes.
1: Did you see that, Doug? Was that the article in the Wall Street Journal? Yes, yes. Sir. Yeah, investors can save a lot of money on taxes if they're putting money aside in 401k plans and IRAs, but many investors who are in or in or near retirement also can end up paying less in taxes in the long run by carefully timing withdrawals from those saving vehicles. A high balance in an IRA can actually be a a curse as well as a blessing when it comes to taxes, particularly for older investors.
3: Uh, Once account holders reach the age of 70 and a half, they often must withdraw a minimum amount each year determined by their age
1: and account balance. So if frugal investors delay taking money out earlier to let their accounts grow, then those required minimum withdrawals we call them rmds when you're 70 and a half they can actually push the client into higher income tax brackets and increase the taxes owed so, so
2: the solution is start taking at least some of the money out in the decade or so before that you turn 70 and a half or that, if you know and and, and that if,
1: works that really works well linda because if you do that even of course you have to wait till you have to 59 and a half But after 59 and a half, to start taking it out of the IRA and rolling it over, account holders can now take it out of a tax-deferred account with no penalty if they withdraw money from a tax-deferred account. But the difference can very, can very, Certainly
2: be significant, Well, it can be significant.
1: (laughs) It really can, Linda. So it's definitely worth it to not just go by the old-fashioned thought, I'll just leave it there. Because when you take it out, you may be thrown into a higher tax bracket.
2: And isn't it true uh, with with uh, some of the clients that that we've met with? And you know, there are a lot of folks. Maybe to you, some of our listen, listeners, you have adequate income, and maybe you're still working, and you don't need this extra income. But Uncle Sam is saying, "Hey, it's time for you to start taking it out," because as you take it out of your IRA. The government's getting taxes,
1: right? That's right. And, of course, we're seeing more and more clients right now who are telling us this is the year. Uh, This is the year either they turned 70 late last year, which means they turned 70 and a half this year, or they know this year they're going to be turning 70, but not 70 and a half until the following year, and they want to know what's the best way to play the game to get the best tax benefit.
3: And I think that's the most important part is working with the certified financial planner right. allows yeah. you to take that 10 years or so ahead of time and say, well, I know what's ahead of me. How can I best plan? Can we do some scenarios and some what ifs? And, and if I'm not needing that money to live off of, how do I uh, withdraw it? The best way, the most tax-efficient way, and uh, like you always say, Doug, if we have two uh, two pockets on one pair of pants, we can definitely take money from a tax-deferred account and have it invested into the personal side, and, and we're not
2: losing anything. We're gaining something.
1: All we're doing is moving from one pocket... To the other pocket, but we're still in the same pair of pants. Yeah. That's exactly right.
2: Give us a call at the office. Our number in Raleigh is 919 872 Again, that's 919-USA-7000. And thank you for joining us.
1: You're reminding me also of some other well-known, but not necessarily truisms that are out there today. And one of the biggest ones is running into a new uh, fallacy this is the study that typically said, well, the older you get, the less stocks and the more, more bonds. bonds. Right, right. You know, conventional wisdom says just that. People entering retirement should have a big portion of their savings, maybe 40 to 60% invested in stocks to help their nest egg grow over time. And then as they age, all but the wealthiest should gradually reduce their stock exposure But there's been a new study that just came out that says exactly what I've been saying for a (laughs) long time. (laughs) But the study comes from a very reputable source.
3: Okay. The Journal of Financial Planning.
1: That's right. The Journal of Financial Planning is calling this traditional advice into question. The report now finds out that those who take the opposite approach actually reducing stock exposure right after retirement and then gradually raising it more and more and more over time, these people are likely to make their money last longer. So, again, I am reminded, don't trust the truisms that are out there, the common things that you've heard, Mm -hmm. because you may be going down the very wrong path.
2: And that's why it is important, if you're out there listening to work with a certified financial planner that can help you look at your situation from a comprehensive viewpoint, one who is a registered investment advisory firm that is going to put your interests ahead of his own and has the expertise and the experience to, uh, you know, to produce analyses that will help you whether you're still working and accumulating or whether you're Getting closer to retirement and you need to make some very definite decisions, important decisions about your future income and your financial independence. So call us at Lewis Financial Management. Leave us your name and number. We'll be happy to get back with you. Let's schedule an appointment to address your financial planning needs. Call us at LFM at 919-872-7000. That's 919-USA-7000.
1: Who is watching out for you? Money Talks News on MSN News had a very interesting discussion. The writer said several weeks ago during a regular face-to-face chat about my Roth IRA investment choices, I asked my financial advisor if he'd be willing to sign a fiduciary pledge. Article said, I'd read a lot about this fiduciary pledge and the fiduciary duty behind them. I knew just enough to be curious about my own advisor's willingness to sign. I even prepared for the part of the conversation by printing out a fairly standard fiduciary pledge and having it ready for him to review and sign. Well, what did it look like, Deborah?
3: <laughs> fiduciary pledge. I, the undersigned, and here he left it for the financial advisor's name, pledge to always put the best interest of this guy's, uh, the client's, first, no matter what. As such, I will disclose in writing the following material facts and any conflicts of interest, actual or perceived that may arise in our business relationship. All commissions, fees, loads, expenses in advance. Client will pay as a result of my advice and recommendations. All commissions, commissions I receive... As a result of my advice and recommendations, the maximum fee discount allowed by my firm, the largest fee discount I give to other customers, the fee discount client is receiving, any recruitment bonuses or recruitment compensation I have or I will receive from my firm, fees I paid to others for the referral of clients to me, fees I have or will receive for referring clients to any third parties and any other financial conflicts of interest that could reasonably compromise the impartiality of my advice and
1: recommendations. And of course, the financial (laughs) advisor is supposed to sign it. Well, you know what happened according to the article. How did the advisor react when he read this pledge? His reaction was, according to the writer, very disappointing. He stammered through the response. He said he'd never heard of such a thing as a fiduciary pledge. He said he'd think about it. And a few days later, he called back to inform the writer that he would be unable to sign. So, really, we have to come up to this question. Well, how important are fiduciary pledges? And what are the implications, if your longtime financial advisor, declines to sign one and of course in our office every we always sign them
3: if you need help call me deborah lewis 919-872-7000 919-872-7000
1: we have had we have used fiduciary pledges for well over 25 years but many people don't know so it comes down to an important question which is what is a fiduciary
3: And if you're new to the topic of fiduciary pledges, a definition is in order. A fiduciary pledge is essentially a promise made in writing by brokers, financial advisors, or other types of money managers to follow a fiduciary standard of conduct. This sounds so
2: straightforward and sensible that you may ask yourself, well, aren't financial advisors and brokers required by law to do this anyway? The short answer, unfortunately, is no. As surreal as it may sound, some folks who are dispensing financial advice these days are simply salespeople with impressive-sounding titles, and they may be skewing their investment suggestions to favor those products that pay richer commissions.
1: So then you might be wondering if the person I'm trusting for financial advice won't agree to sign a fiduciary pledge... Exactly what is that person's responsibility? And the answer is that most commission-based financial advisors are held to a lesser standard known as suitability. So what does suitability mean, Deborah?
3: Suitability means he is only required to suggest investments that are suitable for an investor with your goals,
1: risk tolerance, and financial means. So let's get an example of how it might make a big difference. Linda, give us an example.
2: Well, suppose your goals and your risk tolerance suggest that a good investment for you would be a stock mutual fund, and there are two similar funds available. So one charges a 5% commission okay. and the other a 2%. Okay, a fiduciary would be honor-bound to suggest the fund with the lower costs because that's obviously in your best interest. Well, the suitability standard, on the other hand, allows the advisor to suggest the fund that pays him the higher commission because either fund is suitable.
1: So really, what do you do if you find yourself in the uncomfortable position of having a trusted longtime financial advisor you've been dealing with who declines or refuses to sign a fiduciary pledge? Personally, I'd only work with such an advisor until I found a different one whose firm didn't mind explicitly guaranteeing That they will put the customer's interest ahead of their own and sign a fiduciary pledge. You know, consumers have to begin to demand that all investment professionals who dispense advice be held to this fiduciary standard of conduct. And those who are unwilling or unable should understandably be called out.
2: What that, an interesting
1: article. Isn't and that Very straightforward. We're going to hear more and more about this. The matter of the fiduciary standard, uh, it has been glossed over for years, but at last it's coming to the forefront, and I think the public needs to know the difference between suitability standard and fiduciary standard, and their person that they deal with should be willing to sign such a pledge.
2: You know, it's very interesting. Over the years, I know that there have been uh, – some prospective clients and clients that, um, you know, when they came to us, everything wasn't disclosed. Maybe they bought an annuity or some other vehicle, and it is important that everything be disclosed. Wouldn't you agree,
1: Doug? Absolutely. It's the it's the investor's right. You have a right. Not, and it's, It shouldn't even be thought of. You have a right to know everything because it's your money.
2: Give us a call at the office. Our number in Raleigh is 919 Again, that's 919-USA-7000. And thank you for joining us. Let's take another caller.
1: Mary, this is Doug Lewis, certified financial planner. How can I help you?
5: Yes, I was basically wondering if you could explain a living trust...
1: Well, tell me a little bit about yourself, Mary. How old are you?
5: Well, the question is not for me. It's actually for my father-in-law. How old is he? Uh, 78.
1: He's 78. And is he married or single? He's single. He's single. What's the size of his estate?
5: Uh, There's a problem with that. He had a stroke. He was living by himself, and he was very self-sufficient. He can't recognize people and things like that. So his children went in to try and figure out how he was financially, and he's been saving for a long time. Uh-huh. He lives very, very modestly, mm-hmm. and I think they had said somewhere around seven hundred thousand. All
1: right. Now he no longer is competent with his senses. Is that the, the condition? Most of the time. Well, and you're considering the question of is a living trust suitable for him? Yes. Well, I don't think that you could get a living trust for him because a living trust is an arrangement set up by the individual. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. A living trust, a revocable living trust, has a number of wonderful benefits. Uh, a living trust will minimize administration and probate cost arising at death since the property is titled in the name of the trust and it avoids probate. And a revocable living trust also allows flexibility on the part of the trustee the trustee is usually the person who sets it up, although it can be a child or a, or another person. Uh, the person who sets it up transfers his assets into the trust and identifies and names the trustee. And then since it's revocable, the person who sets it up can make any changes in the trust agreement anytime they wish. That's why it's called a revocable living trust. And the living trust avoids publicity with respect to the transfer of property because details are not made as a matter of public record after a person dies. And one of the biggest uh, um, advantages of the revocable living trust is that it avoids the necessity of a court-supervised conservatorship in the event of a physical or mental incompetence, but you got to do that beforehand. In other words, when you set up a revocable living trust, you're really planning for what if something happens to me. If it does then you've named a subsequent trustee who follows you. And that keeps children from coming in and messing things up and all the things you're saying.
3: Yeah. You're listening to Money Matters with Doug, Linda, and Deborah Lewis. Call to make an appointment with Deborah Lewis, Certified Financial Planner of Lewis Financial Management. Call 919-872-7000 or
2: visit our website, dougandlinda.com. Did anybody have any power of attorney for his affairs, or
5: I'm not sure. Uh, one of his daughters can write checks in his name. Does that mean? No. So.
1: Well, there probably either there was a power of attorney, or there was a, or he had her as joint ownership on the uh, on the account. But a revocable living trust is set up while a person is competent, in and and it and it prepares for the day when suppose something happens and they're not competent. If indeed. The doctor would agree that he was competent. You could, with the help of an attorney, establish a revocable living trust. Go to him, and if this was his desire while he was competent in in, in moments of lucidity, he could then go ahead and uh, and sign a, a trust naming either you or your or, or your husband as trustee and so forth. Uh, that's a matter of legal um, uh, advice, and I can't give you legal advice, so I can I can only say that I do know of cases where that has happened but it would depend on someone testifying that he is abs that he is competent at the time that he establishes his trust the whole key is going to be competence what he can set up now and the next question is going to be who does the court say Uh, has control over his assets right now. And that's just not someone that walks in and says, I'll take control, unless he's given control to someone.
2: And if you have further questions, call the office in Raleigh at 919-872-7000. That's 919-USA-7000. Thank you. Thank you so much for calling, Mary. Bye-bye. Take care.
1: Well, that's all the Money Matters we have time for today. So we want to thank all our listeners for joining us and for any other questions you may have, call my office during the week and we'll set up an appointment to meet with you personally. That number is 919-872-7000. That's 919-USA-7000. And we'll be back next week on this same station at the same time. In the meantime, have a great week. And remember, your money matters because your financial future is at stake.